Uh, we ended off last week uh, at the first part of chapter 15, and uh, we we're just looking at the issue that was the cause for this council that was taking place in the book of Acts. It was a big theological council, and the issue was simply, um, is the grace of God a free gift, or is the fa- grace of God a gift plus works? That's a real important question, and it's something that is um, uh, an ongoing struggle for the church. If there's one phrase that I want to leave with us, and if there's nothing else that you remember, I hope this will be one of the things that maybe summarizes this chapter, is simply this, that grace is God's gift. Don't mess with it. We have messed with grace um, ever since we have been created, and there's two uh, ways that we mess with grace. Now, the first way, it's a word that we use, uh, it's called legalism. And you can find all about legalism in books like Galatians, a little bit um, in the book of Colossians. But legalism is when we add to grace. And we say, well, one is saved by grace, but um, you're also saved by your works. And so, you know, yeah, God has done a great work for us in Christ, but you really have to make sure that you walk in obedience. You really have to make sure that you have fruit. You really have to make sure that you don't do this and you do do that. And and that those are conditions that we add on to grace. And we do that all the time. And that was the heart of the issue that was taking place in in uh, in the church in Antioch. Because there were some who were saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, it was grace plus the work of circumcision. And then in verse 5, they said it was grace plus obedience to the law of Moses. And so Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with legalism and grace. But there's also an insidious um, opposite of legalism, which we call uh, a big word, um, antinomianism. Uh, the actual, another word is licentiousness, and you can find that in the book of Jude, um, uh, you find it described in Romans chapter 6. Jude tells about those. He says, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith against those who come in and try and, listen to this, pervert the grace of God. And they pervert the grace of God by licentiousness, by loose living, by casting aside all restraints. As um, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you have those who come along and they say, well, may I continue in grace? Or can't we continue in grace that, uh, or sin that grace may abound? In other words, well, I've been saved by grace. My sins, past, present, and future are dealt with. So it really doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want. And Paul goes on and he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so when we think about this issue of grace, there are two sort of pendulum swings that are equally hideous and equally dangerous. And we are just dealing with the one swing here, which is legalism in this particular church. We come, uh, as we pick it up from last week, this is kind of part two, but we start at verse six, and let me just read uh, verses six to 12 uh, to start this morning, and that will get us going. Uh, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, this matter of whether or not we need to add obedience to grace. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and listened as Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We have here a debate now that's taking place. It says there that they got together and they considered this matter. This is a civil debate. It's not like the debate that was taking place in verse 1 when it says that there was uh, this dissension that arose. And as I talked last week, it was almost like rioting. It was rude behavior. It was violent behavior. It was verbal sort of attacks that were taking place. This is a very different kind of debate. This is a wonderful kind of debate. This is the kind of debate that should take place in churches. It should take place in marriages. It's discussion about an issue. And some of you might have been here oh, three, four, five months ago when we had a church meeting. And we were talking about Bethlehem Walk. And we're working as a church on what we should do with Bethlehem Walk. And it was very encouraging in that particular meeting to find people able to freely say on both sides of the issue what they thought about Bethlehem Walk and what they saw some of the benefits were and what they saw some of the hindrances were to it. And it was a wonderful discussion about the pros and the cons of Bethlehem Walk. And then afterwards, we, we, we didn't solve the issue, but we put together a group of people who are now looking to a solution for us that will be presented in a couple of weeks. That is a wonderful thing to do. That is a normal um, way to resolve issues amongst congregants or in a marriage. You talk about it, and then you come up with a solution. And so we find that taking place, and what they were looking for was to get the mind of the Holy Spirit. How do we know what, what Christ wants us to understand on this issue of grace and works? And so as they had had this debate, at some point, and we know this, at some point, a decision has to be made. We know that. You can't endlessly debate about what color you should paint your walls or about where you should go on holidays or even more significant issues about whether or not you should buy a house or whether or not you should come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there's an ascending urgency on some of these debates. At some point, a decision has to be made. And as we see in this particular instance, finally, after all the debate, the leaders stood up to the plate and said, okay, this is the direction that we are going. Leaders have to lead. And we see that described in this particular instance. And so the first one to stand up is Peter. Peter was one of the well-known apostles, one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. And Peter stands up and, and he begins to, what we find in these three speeches for, from Peter, Paul and Barnabas and James, is they give a beautiful picture of how God works to save people. And so it's not just, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it helps us understand today how God works to save people. And so Peter stands up and his contribution to this is he just wants to point out the work of God in salvation. And this is so critical that we understand this. The work of God in salvation. And Peter recalls to their mind, and you can find this, we won't look at it today, but you can read it. In, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter tells about this amazing story of how God had showed him that he needed to go to the Gentiles. God had opened the door to send him to the Gentiles. And it's a significant story from so many levels. Peter was a Jew, and he happened to be vacationing in a seaside town and staying at the house of a tanner. Big no-no. A Jew would never stay in the house of a tanner because there are dead things there. And you have no contact with dead things. Not only was he in the house of the tanner, but um, he had a group of people, Gentiles, come and talk to him. And he brought them into the house. And that was a no-no. 
You don't talk to Gentiles and you don't bring them into your house. On top of that, he had been up praying on the roof one day. And as he was praying on the roof one day, God gave him this vision. And the vision was a a, a life-changing vision for Peter that took him a long time to figure out. But if you remember the vision, this sheet came down from heaven. And on this sheet was every kind of animal and food that God had told the Jews they could not eat. And it was a sort of like a banquet table for Peter. And God said to Peter three times, Peter, get up and eat. Lord, I can't do this. Peter, get up and eat. Can't do this. Peter, get up and eat. I can't do this. And Jesus makes a comment a little earlier that in this way, God declared all foods clean. God was beginning to break down the walls that separated Gentiles and Jews. And he was doing this in Peter's life just by the way of he was living. And so Peter stands up now with that context in mind. And he says to the people in verse 7, he says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to him, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God. I love this because this reminds me that salvation is God's issue. Salvation is the work of God. Before Peter even had it in his head, even when he didn't even want to go to the Gentiles, God was preparing a path so that his people could walk down that path and share the good news of the gospel with those who had not yet heard the good news. The fingerprints of God are all over this account. Um, From start to finish, salvation is a work of God. And the Gentile mission could only be attributed to God. So Peter is starting out by explaining to these people and summarizing. Listen, they were arguing, well, does man do this? Does man do that? Does man do this? Do you have to do that? Do you have to do that? And Peter says, wait a minute. Salvation is God's deal. And God sent me to them. You know that. God sent me. To them, And we find this, in, and, and you can on your own look at these uh, passages. Um, Acts chapter 26, verse 16 is Christ commissioning Paul to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to take them from darkness to light, to remove them from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. That was a work of God in sending Paul to the Gentiles as well. What was Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But a reminder, what he says, wait in Jerusalem until what? Until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you will be my witnesses. Where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It has always been the work of God to send men and women to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. So Peter's beginning to describe to him. He's saying, listen, this is not a man issue. This is a God issue, this, this salvation by grace. And then the next thing he says, he says, not only did God send me, this is God's work in sending me, but notice what he says in verse um, 7 as well. He says that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and be saved. This is another critical thing that as a church we need to come to grips with. You on your own, again, I'm giving you lots to read, but you can read Romans chapter 10 and get an understanding of this uh, on yourself this next, this next week. People are saved through the spoken word of God or the written word of God. People are saved through the spoken or written word of God. They are saved in no other way. 
They are not saved because we are good Christian neighbors. They are not saved because we just live a good life. They are saved because we speak the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? How beautiful are the feet of them who live a good life before me. No. How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. What did Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God, first to Jew and then to Gentile, to salvation. Loved ones, it is the work of God through the word of God that brings people into the family of God. And when we shy away from proclaiming the gospel, when we shy away from declaring the gospel, how will somebody come to faith in Jesus Christ? And so Paul clearly tells them that it is through the word of God that people open their hearts to Christ. In our Bible study this past week, we had a great Bible study and just a great time of praise. And one of the individuals that was in our Bible study was sharing how they were been up working on a home. And uh, they had a contractor that was working on a home of theirs in the interior. And uh, that God just gave them a wonderful opportunity to share, speak the word of God about salvation to this individual. And how in the sharing of the word of God, their, their heart is beginning to open and their interest is beginning to be perked. And that they have even said, yes, you can send me a Bible. But that happens because they took the courage and shared the word. They spoke the word. And so we need to understand, as Peter says to them, they're not saved by works. They're not saved by their own stuff. They're saved because God sent me with his word to declare to them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he commands us to go to people and share the word of truth. Because it's in the word that we have the gospel. What is the gospel? And again, in a nutshell, the gospel is, is simply that every single one of us that has ever been born has been born a sinner. We have been born estranged from God. We have been born hostile to God. We are born at enmity towards God. There is this, this, this desire in us to do our own thing and to ignore God's thing. And no matter what we try and do, no matter how we live, we can't break sin's curse on our life. We are dead in our sins and trespasses and we are under the wrath of God because how we live our lives. And that applies to every one of us. And if you think about that, then we think, oh man. I'm in big trouble. So do you look at nature and look out at nature and say, well, the trees tell me how God's going to save me. Or you go for a wonderful walk and you say, oh, the flowers tell me how God's going to save me. Or you look at your neighbor who's living a good life and you say, well, my neighbors, I can just look at his life and he'll tell me how I can be saved. No, it's because then somebody with the courage and the boldness full of the Holy Spirit comes and says, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is able to get you out of your predicament. Jesus is the one who is able to forgive your sins. Jesus is the one who, if you allow him, has borne the wrath of God in your place. Jesus, by his death, has borne your punishment, has borne your curse, and by the resurrection of God in his life, has, has, his sacrifice has been accepted. And so you don't have to work for your salvation. It's all been done in Christ. You will never be good enough for salvation, but if you ask Christ, he will give you his right and you will live forever with God. You don't have to do a thing. It's all been done for you by God. The work is complete. It's done by God. What you do is simply say, God, would you save me in Christ? And he will forgive your sins, 
cleanse you and make you one of his children. That needs to be spoken. That needs to be declared. And so we have this, this work of God in sending. We have this work of God in, in the word that we declare. And then Peter talks about the acceptance of God. He goes on and he says there um, that, that um, in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, making no distinction between us and them. Do you see what's going on here? I am so glad that God knows my heart. I am so glad that that somebody knows my heart. You know, I could pull the wool over every one of your eyes. I can live a, a wonderful life. I can always speak good things. I can give you an impression that I'm the wonderful husband, that I'm a wonderful dad, that I'm a wonderful pastor. But inside my heart can just be a mess. And in the same way, we can look at somebody who's lived, they've, they've figured it out that, okay, I know how to act in church so that people will talk to me. They won't avoid me. They'll invite me to their Bible studies. They'll help me over for dinner. But their heart has never been transformed. But God knows the heart. And it says here in this particular instance that it's the heart that has been changed. God knows the heart. And the demonstration that God saw into that heart and realized that it had received grace is what? He gave them the Holy Spirit also. The same gift that we Jews received, the Gentiles received. And it was all a work of God. And so Peter describes how God has accepted them. God confirmed salvation that had taken place inside. Remember, salvation is an eternal, internal work. It's this transformation where God takes a dead heart and a dead soul. And through what Christ has done on the cross, he gives life to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's something that happens from the inside out by a work of God. And so he says... God has seen that. He's made no distinction. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And then he says that he cleansed their hearts. Oh, do you know what it's like to have a cleansed heart? It's almost indescribable. You know, you can wash your clothes. You can wash your skin. But you can't wash your heart. And to have Jesus Christ and his blood Cleanse your heart is an absolutely indescribable gift. And Peter says to them, listen, their hearts weren't cleansed because they kept the law. Their hearts weren't cleansed because they were circumcised. Their hearts were cleansed because God applied the work of Christ to their life. And so he's describing to them this work. And so Peter stands up and he says, listen, God sent me. God's word was proclaimed to them. God saw their hearts. It's not because of anything they did. It's not because of anything that man does. It's all because of what God has done. And then Peter doesn't end there. He says, listen, don't mess with God's grace. Grace is a free gift of God. Don't mess with it. And then he gives them two warnings. And we need to listen to these warnings today ourselves as well as followers of Christ. The first is a theological warning. And it comes in verse 10. And Peter says to them, listen, why are you putting God to the test? Now, I believe that every single Jew 
who had attended synagogue and been read the Torah would have known exactly what Peter was referring to. It's a passage that has been driven into the psyche of every single Jewish people. It's the waters of Merah. When the disciples had, or when the Israelites had been in Egypt, and, and through the miraculous intervention of God, as God sent the plagues on the Egyptians, and then as God delivered them and opened the sea, and they walked through the sea, they had been into the desert for three days. God had said, listen, I've saved you. I will keep you. Trust me. And they were three days in the desert. They stopped somewhere, and they had no water. They couldn't see water anywhere, and they began to grumble and complain and whine. And they went after Moses, and then they went after God, and they tested God. And what were they testing in God? They were testing the promise of God to provide for them. They were testing the power of God to give them water. They were testing God's character by doubting him. And so what Peter is saying to them, don't test God. Don't, don't say, God, your way of salvation isn't good enough. God, your power to save isn't enough. God, I know you've started it, but now we have to finish it. And I need to finish it because I'm a really good person. And so my works will just add the cherry on top of my salvation. Or my circumcision will just finish off what needed to be done because your work wasn't quite complete. Don't test God. Every time, loved ones, you doubt your salvation in grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, You're testing God. Don't test God. Trust God. And so he says, don't test God. And the second is a pastoral warning. And I love pastoral warnings. It's along these lines. Don't crush them. Don't crush them. You know, sometimes the moment somebody's saved, we can't wait to dump on them all kinds of rules. All right, now you got to read your Bible. You got to go to church. You got to start giving. Got to change your clothes. Got to get stop smoking. Got to stop drinking. Um, and all of a sudden, we we add this weight on top of people, and they just get crushed underneath it. So I can't do that, and they can't, and we can't do that. You know, this is a silly little illustration, but it's just an illustration. About three months ago. Um, I decided to not drink coffee anymore. Paul's willpower, not going to drink coffee. And I've been doing pretty good. And uh, I've had a few little cravings and, and whatnot, but I've been strong, my willpower. And I was out for dinner with Kathy last night and uh, had a nice dinner, and um, Kathy ordered a coffee. Bang! <laughs> Anyhow, Kathy, Kathy ordered a coffee and um, nice thick cream and sugar in it. And I caved. And I drank about a half of her cup of coffee. <laughs> I am so glad that my salvation is not based on my willpower. I am so glad that my salvation is not built on the fact that I will never lose my temper again. I am so glad that my salvation is not rooted in the fact that I will never not be forgiving again. I am so glad that my salvation does not depend on anything I do or don't do. It depends on what God has done in Christ. So why, loved ones, do we crush one another with all these things that they have to do to prove that they are saved? This is what our brothers fought for almost 2,000 years ago. We need to keep fighting for it today. 
Grace is God's gift. Don't mess with it. So Peter stands up before these people and he says to them, listen, you need to understand that salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. Paul and Barnabas stand up and I will only say this to you. Um, You can read this in, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. They say, listen, I want to tell you and show you evidence of how God has saved people. And so they must have stood up and, and for the next little while shared about the, the people that had come to faith. And they must have told story after story after story of how these Gentiles had heard the word of the gospel and how God had transformed their life. And there was great rejoicing. And there were, there were hundreds of these Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ because they had heard the word of God. There was clear evidence that they were saved because of the word of God, not because they were circumcised, not because they kept the law, but simply because God had opened their hearts and they received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul and Barnabas, I would have loved to have been there. I don't know, sometimes, you know, we just hear one testimony. And doesn't it just warm your heart? And wow, that is so cool. God is still saving people. And then you go back and I remember when I was saved. Could you imagine having somebody stand up for maybe a half hour and just say story after story after story after story after story about the power of God in saving people? Won't your heart just be full of joy? So Paul and Barnabas stand up and they give evidence of how God has saved them. And then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and he talks about the plan of God in salvation. And this is such a critical piece to this as well. He talks about the plan of God in salvation. I like the way James starts, and sorry, I'm not reading it all to you. Um, He begins in verse 13. After they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. I love that phrase, brothers. I wish more often that, um, that as Christians gather together that we would sprinkle in our conversations with one another, brothers and sisters. It just diffuses tension. It reminds us that we're part of the same family. And so even if we're mad with one another, we can say, but brother. And that kind of just is a nice phrase. Or we can say, sister. Um, you know, there, there ought to be good relations between us. We have our differences, I know, but let's just work this out as a family. And so James gets up and he says, listen, we're all brothers here, so let, let, let me speak now to, to what's going on. And he goes to them and he, he says in verse 14, and this is, this is such a critical verse. He says, Simon, and it's fascinating to me that he uses Peter's Jewish name, not his Greek name, But he says, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. And then this phrase is just packed full of meaning. To take from them a people for his own name. Loved ones, if you were a Jew, right away, that would just explode in your head. Because every single Jewish person would have thought in their heads about the way that God had chosen them from all the peoples of the world to be his treasured possession to the glory of his name. And that phrase is woven throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And that's what gave the Jews such pride. That's what gave the Jews such confidence is that they knew that of all the people, God had selected them to be his children and to bring glory to his name. 
It was something that they just, that just was, was important for them. And, and, and maybe it's like being adopted that, that if, if you're adopted and, and you're selected from a whole group of people and you've been adopted into this wonderful family with a wonderful mom and dad and, and it's special to you because you of all the kids they could have chosen were chosen by them and you bear the family name. What a joy that is. And so what James does here is he's all of a sudden, he's saying, listen, God has not just done this for the Jew. He's done this for the Gentile. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying God's family is not just about Jews. God's family is about Gentiles. God's family is not just about the Jewish people. God's family is about the people of God. See, the Jews, they, they would have, there are lots of passages 7, 6 of Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, a treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is, this is a fulfillment of, of the, of uh, Exodus 19.5. I'll come back to it. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. This is the promise of Abraham being fulfilled. What did, remember what, 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 what Paul makes the point in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing, listen to this. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see what he's saying? He says it's not just about the people of Israel. It's about the people of God. It's not just about the Jewish people. It's about the Indonesian people. It's about the African people. It's about the Brazilian people. It's about, I, they're, they're gone from my head, but you know what I'm, Czechoslovakians, Poles, Germans. Any, any, it's about all of them. And God has always had a plan from the beginning of Genesis to incorporate all of us into this family. And he's saying this is the part of, this is the plan of God unfolding right before your eyes. You ought to be rejoicing. Because he's saying, it's James's way of saying it's not just about us Jews. This is about the plan of God and the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. And so Peter stands up and he could have quoted a lot of prophets, but he quotes Amos. And he simply says there that, um, that I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Loved ones, it is a staggering thing to know that you are called by God. Many of you know what that is like this morning. You have been called by God to the glory of his name. Again, what he's saying is salvation is all of God. God does the calling, and it's for his name. It's for his glory. And so, James, this is James's way of saying, listen, the Gentiles are part of God's plan of salvation, just as we Jews are. The conclusion, then, is don't trouble the Gentiles. Don't make it difficult for them to come to Christ. Loved ones, I pray in this church that we would never, ever put roadblocks to people coming to faith. That we would just share the good news of the gospel with them and say, would you receive it? It's God's free gift to you. 
not, well, you know, if you, if you need to do this, this, and this first before you start coming to church. You need to clean this up first. And, you know, God will save you, but you've got to get this in order first. Or after, you know, we can't really know you're saved because we don't really see. Oh, stop it. Loved ones, it doesn't matter. What matters is God sees the heart. God will work the transformation in them. Leave that to God just as we ought to leave salvation to God. So he says, don't trouble the Gentiles. And then he makes a concession to them. And this is not now contradicting everything they've said. This is just a concession to to open up the doors of table fellowship. To realize that, you know, even though we are all the same under Christ, we do have different traditions and we do have different backgrounds. And, you know, we do have different stuff that we bring to the table. And some of it matters to us, not in a saving way, but just because that's who we are. And so he says, you know, tell these people to abstain from sexual immorality, to not eat blood um, uh, in an animal, to not eat an animal that was strangled, and to not eat food that was um, sold or offered to an idol. And he's doing that simply because he wants to encourage the godliness of the Gentiles. He wants to allow the, the word of God to begin to shape their context. And he wants to encourage table fellowship. Because the Jews still, it took a long time for them to get this stuff. Peter didn't change overnight, even though God gave him a vision. You read Galatians, and we find there that, that Peter backtracked, and he all of a sudden stopped eating with the Gentiles because of pressure from the Jews. It took him for a while to get this stuff. So, in other words, he's saying, listen, if you have a Jew over to your home, don't put pork on the table. Like, don't be silly about it. Just use common sense. You want to encourage fellowship. So, you know, if you know somebody that doesn't drink, and you drink, and you have them over, they don't have wine. Just don't, don't push those things. This is, this is the kind of stuff that he's saying here. What Peter was asking for of the Gentiles was that they be trained by grace. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people and then, listen, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is just the beginning of their training. Be trained by grace. And finally, the decision. I'll move for this really quickly. The decision is made, and that's communicated from verses 22 to 29. And you can read that on your own. There's a couple phrases that I just want to bring to your attention. It seemed good. It starts right away in verse 22. It seemed good. Loved ones, I don't think God expects us all to agree on everything 100%. I don't... You know, I don't, I don't think Kathy and I agree on everything 100%. Um, it, <laughs> but but there, are, there are a lot of times when it just seems good. The decision we make just seems right. And I think that happens as a church sometimes. We're never going to agree 100%. I don't think the Bible asks us to have unanimous decisions on everything we decide. But once we get to a decision and it seems good, then we should just all get on board and say, yeah, you know, that really wasn't what I thought, but it seems good, so let's go this way. But I like what he even says even further in verse um, uh, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay any greater burden on you. How does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit works as we talk, as we dialogue. Very rarely, I think, does the Holy Spirit ever say, this is the answer. 
But the Holy Spirit uses our conversations, uses Scripture to shape what we ought to do. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us that you do these things. I I love the way that he puts that. And so there's a theme of unity that's running throughout this text. And again, the main issue is grace. This is what they have been defending. This is what they've been fighting for. And as we close, I think of these last sentences. When we understand that we are saved by grace, we are free from the hopeless necessity of trying to commend ourselves by our works and by our law-keeping. And so we are free to fail. Has anyone ever told you you're free to fail? I'm not telling you this so you can go out and sin. But we are not saved by our goodness and we, are not, we don't lose our salvation by our badness. I wish we could understand that as God's people. Our goodness and our badness matter, but it contributes nothing to our salvation. And so the fact that I might lose my temper this week is not a good thing in God's sight, but it's not a salvation issue because my salvation is secure by the grace of God and what has been done by Christ. And so I'm free to fail. And so when we understand that we are saved by grace, we are free from this pressure of having to be good or despairing when we're bad. When you understand that you are saved by grace, you know that you are free from sin's grip on you and its power over you. You see, loved ones, as long as you think your salvation in part depends on you, by either what you do or don't do, sin has power over you. It does. Because you think, well, if I sin, I'm in big trouble now. Or if you think you do good, well, God's really going to be happy with me now. And sin is still controlling you. But when you understand grace, sin just begins to lose its grip on you. And you just do the stuff you want to do because you are so full of thankfulness because of what God has done for you in Christ. And then lastly, when we understand we are saved by grace, we are free from bondage to fear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All of those who are justified in Christ are at peace with God. You see, when you understand, loved ones, that your salvation is in what Christ has done for you entirely, and when you receive that, you, your condemnation evaporates and peace just floods over. When you still wrestle with, with, with that, then you think, shoot, I was bad. God's going to condemn me. Oh, no. Or, man, I was really good this week. Oh, I got lots of peace. No. When you understand grace, that stuff evaporates. May we as a congregation and we as individuals fight for grace. Grace is God's free gift to us. Don't mess with it.